0: Hello and welcome to Paranormal Pets. I'm your host, Brandy Stark, and we are continuing with Werewolves of Winter. We're going to take a look at some of these ancient mythological ideologies that are proposed by the book Werewolves, A Field Guide to Shapeshifters, Lycanthropes, and Man Beasts by Dr. Bob Curran. I'm using this as kind of some inspiration, and at the end of our discussion today, I will include yet another recorded paranormal pet story from the public. So we'll get started right after these messages.
1: It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops
0: Welcome back to Paranormal Pets. I'm still your host, Brandi Stark, and I just want to give everybody a heads up out there. The pugs are asleep, but uh, if you hear any noises in the background, it's most likely them. Both my boy, Achilles, and my adopted pug, Belvedere, I adopted him about seven years ago, but uh, both actually had birthdays in November. Uh, Achilles is slightly older by about three weeks, but he turned 15 and Belvedere has turned 15. And so I've got a couple of little old men and they snore really, really loudly. So I apologize for that. Achilles, as you all might remember, is actually a retired paranormal pug. So he is sleeping next to my current paranormal pug, Patroclus. So kind of interesting. But that aside, let us talk a little about ancient cultures and the werewolves. Now, the author, Dr. Bob Curran, does describe a little bit of the Epic of Gilgamesh, where this is one of my very favorite epics ever. So I am going to suggest, if you haven't read it, to read it. It is a Mesopotamian epic that was rediscovered in the 1800s from some clay tablets. I have discussed the Epic of Gilgamesh quite often, in part because it also contains a very old ghost story in Book 12, which is an appended chapter. It is kind of an interesting one, but the story features Gilgamesh, who is basically the inheritor of a throne. His city is Uruk. and His father built the city, was a great hero, and in fact, Gilgamesh is the son of a goddess as well, Ninsen, the goddess of dreams, corn, and cattle, kind of interesting. So he's got a divine heritage. His father is a hero, and when we start off the story, he is a young man, and he is in need of he's got a big ego. Let me just put it to you that way. He is in need of some taming. And in fact, the story starts off that uh, Gilgamesh, kind of like a young man between 18 and let's say 24, he is deflowering all of the virgins before their husbands on their wedding night. And he is running his soldiers in contests all the time. He is wearing his people out and he is neglecting the city. And so the people pray to the gods, please help us. And the gods say, okay, we can fix this. So while Gilgamesh happens to be the son of a hero and a goddess, so let's say he's two-thirds divine and one-third human, the gods create, and believe it or not, by the way, before I forget, that is actually not a random number that I have picked out. Because a hero is more than mortal, but less than divine, it kind of bumps Gilgamesh's divine heritage up a bit to that two-thirds level. I always thought that was kind of funny because folks are like, well, why don't you say half? I'm like, well, he kind of is and he kind of isn't. So there you go. Anyway, the gods decide that they are going to fix this situation by giving him kind of a perfect companion. So if Gilgamesh is on the side of divinity, the heroes, and humankind, what they do is they sculpt, essentially, they create a man Uh, who is a man beast. He is covered with fur. He lives among the animals. And in fact, he becomes a nuisance. He is superhumanly strong for a furry big guy. In fact, some might say he sounds a little bit like a Neanderthal or a Yeti, which I think would be interesting. But he becomes problematic because he is releasing animals from the hunter's traps uh, and he is bothering the shepherds. And the people finally come to Gilgamesh and they say, hey, there's this super strong guy out there who's making a mess of things. And you as king should fix this. Well, Gilgamesh is intrigued because he is the strongest man. There is nobody compatible with him and he really wants to fight the wild man. Well, and I I do teach this in humanities. How do you train a wild man? How do you tame a man? Well, if you guys aren't ready for this, uh, sorry, but the answer is through a sacred temple prostitute. So he sends out kind of the head prostitute of the goddess Inanna, who is the goddess of love and war. Ishtar is another name, of course. And uh, you just got to love this woman because she sleeps with Enkidu, uh, I think it's for seven days and six nights, if I'm not mistaken. And then she teaches him to bathe. And I always thought that was kind of like, whoa, okay. And then ultimately, she teaches him to oil his skin and to wear clothing. The animals reject him because he is now more human than animal. But I think it's kind of an interesting comparison that we could say that he's kind of a wild man, right? He is humanesque. He is one third human, perhaps, and two third animal. And in fact, he is usually shown with horns and a tail, kind of indicating his intense strength. So, Enkidu, according to this author, is kind of the were-beast of sorts. Uh, He goes from being an animal to a man. And of course, there's always that allegorical symbolism that we find in this system of the were-creatures, where humans and animals. We see this in movies. For example, the movie Wolf from 1993 with Jack Nicholson actually has Jack Nicholson kind of in an interesting state because he he goes from being human, kind of a, an overly domesticated human, if you will, to being bitten by a wolf, to becoming a very assertive, wild, powerful male. But then the animal side takes over and, you know, there's these mysterious wolf attacks. One day he wakes up and there are fingers in his mouth and he's horrified and eventually by the end of the movie, and uh, spoiler alert, so fast forward if you don't want to know, but he, he transforms entirely into a wolf, and he leaves civilization behind. So we actually kind of have these rather interesting comparisons. In the ancient world, we have the idea of an animal becoming human, right? The civilization and the culture, the cultivation of man. Whereas in modern times, we have the opposite, an overly domesticated male. The character in the beginning is impotent. He is being bullied at work. His career is a dead end. You know, he's just you know, kind of an emasculated figure. So going from kind of this overly domesticated element into the wild. I find that to be really interesting juxtaposition. Need to write a paper on that. Anyway, you heard it here first. So the end of the story of Gilgamesh, just so you know, is that Gilgamesh and Enkidu do indeed fight. And Gilgamesh does win, but only barely. And the two end up really becoming best buds. (laughs) They are inseparable. They are the original Batman and Robin, if you will. And in fact, Gilgamesh has his has Enkidu adopted by his mother. And they have what we would call today a bromance. They just totally get each other. So it's kind of an interesting story. So definitely check that out. Now... We do find some other ideologies in this book where he does talk about some of the Greeks. So I thought this would be some fun section to read. Although the Gilgamesh story is often cited as the most ancient recorded werewolf story available, and again, werewolf, very loosely applied here, some scholars dismiss it as not being an actual werewolf tale, saying no actual transformation occurred within the tale I did disagree with that, but okay. They point instead to a detail in the Satyricon, a work written by a Roman writer, Petronius, who lived in 27 to 66 CE, a scribe at the court of Emperor Nero, which of course is just perfect. The work was written around AD 61 or 61 CE, but it was not published until 1664, when it was only sporadically circulated. You got to love all these works that they lose and then rediscover a couple thousand years later, right? So it details the escapades of two homosexual friends, but also contains the story of Nasirios, a soldier who traveled with an acquaintance to a distant city on their journey. They stopped off in a deserted graveyard to relieve themselves to the soldier's horror. His companion with an evil laugh made a circle of urine around himself, threw off his clothes, which turned to stone changed into the guise of a wolf and bounded off to do harm to a neighboring settlement. There he was wounded in the throat by a spear wielded by one of the populace and was forced to flee. Nasirios was treated for the wound in a nearby house. There are, of course, many subtexts to the tale. To urinate within the precincts of a graveyard was an insult to the dead and would invite some sort of supernatural consequences. Also, the idea that the companion might turn into a ravening wolf shows how much ancient perceptions of the animal persisted even into classical times. Now, it is kind of interesting to have that legend because, indeed, I've heard about it. I've heard the more PC version, which I do teach as well. And that basic story is that, uh, indeed, the soldier does transform into a wolf. The companion goes to bed, but when he awakes the next morning, he discovers his friend has a mortal wound to the neck. He's bled out. And, of course, it turns out that the wolf, when he was attacked in the neighboring city, had been speared in the neck. So kind of an interesting tale on top of that. And what this story doesn't mention is they also tie it into the full moon. So we do have some of the ancient concepts of lunacy that start here. All right. So let's actually pause here because we're going to talk about the Greeks in just a moment. We will be back with that right after these messages.
2: Now, time for something really scary. A word from our sponsors. Paranormal pets will reappear before you can say Bigfoot. Don't run away.
0: Take a bite out of your competition. For more information on how you
2: can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On pet Life Radio. PetLife Radio.
0: PetLifeRadio.com. Pet
2: Did you hear that? Our commercials have mysteriously disappeared. Paranormal Pets is back with our haunted host, our ghost host,
1: Brandi Stark.
0: Hello and welcome back. We are going to continue some of our classical journeys through werewolves. We're going to start off with the Lycaon legends, which the author also talks about. Uh, Lycaon is kind of an interesting story, and I do use this to teach as well. I have a a series uh, that talks about the transformation of the werewolf imagery from ancient to modern times. But in classical Greece, there was a mysterious ritual on the top of Mount Lycaion, a remote spot in the highlands of Arcadia in the Peloponnesus Peninsula. Mention of this place and of the clandestine rituals that were there come down to us from Greek writer Panassus, a Lydian geographer who died in the kingdom of Sparta sometime between 470 and 465 BCE. At the time of his writing, the lower slopes of the mountains were covered by thick forests, which were the home of predatory wolves, making it a most dangerous area indeed. The upper slopes, however, were bare and rocky, and the boulders there were said to conceal a strange shrine dedicated the Lycaon Zeus, where strange rituals were carried out. The name given to the mountain has its origin in ancient Greek legend. Lycaion was originally said to have been a person, a prehistoric king, in fact, who ruled Arcadia in the years before the Great Deluge. Now, if you're not aware of the Great Deluge, the Greeks actually have a, a flood story. You have a man who survives. He is a good man. Uh, I think his name is Pyrus, if memory serves. He's warned. He gets into a boat. He survives the flood. And uh, he is actually the only survivor, right? And ultimately what happens is he needs a female companion because... If he's the only survivor, you got some problems there. And the gods tell him, actually, I take that back. I believe he was survived with his wife. I apologize. Good Lord. I need to look at my mythology. Anyway, he and his wife do survive the flood, but they are the only survivors. There we go. It's a surviving couple. And ultimately, they still need to repopulate the earth. I mean, that's a lot for two people to do. So the gods tell them to throw the bones of their mother over their shoulders. And uh, they do because they figure out that the bones of their mother are the stones of the earth. And as they throw the stones over their shoulders, the man gets men to grow from these stones and the woman has women grow from these stones. And of course, we're, we're kind of also symbolizing a shift From kind of a golden age, silver age, to kind of a stone age, to a tougher time period, people made of stone rather than kind of this divine clay, right? The descendants of the divine couple. All right. Anyway, so in an attempt to ingratiate himself with the god Zeus, the king invited the deity to feast on a high mountainside at which he served up human flesh, said by some versions of the story to be that of his own son or his nephew. When Zeus found out that he'd been eating human flesh, he was outraged and in a fit of anger turned Lycaon into a wolf. The transformation would last nine years, after which Lycaon would turn back into a man, provided he had not tasted human flesh while in the wolf guise. If he had eaten human flesh, he would remain a wolf forever. The ritual at which Parnassians hinted, Parnassius hinted, possibly involved the worship of Zeus in the guise of a wolf. This has led some writers to assume that it may have involved human sacrifice and cannibalism. However, Greek culture writer Walter Burkett Basing his theory on the writings of Pliny suggests that the ritual may have been a kind of rite of passage practiced by young males in certain Arcadian communities or families. Pliny suggests that a young man was chosen from among the family and taken to a remote spot where he hung his clothes on an oak tree, swam across a lake, and went into the wild to live like a wolf for nine years, whereupon he swam back, dressed himself, and resumed his human life as a full-grown man. In these nine years, he was not to have tasted human flesh, else he become a beast of the forest, and beyond humanity. The notion of the swimming across water is significant as it suggests, according to cultural anthropologists, a break with the human world. There may of course have also been some sort of human sacrifice involved, but the exact nature of this is unclear. Although not doubting this, Panassus is extremely skeptical of the metamorphosis of human into wolf. And ultimately, I'm a little bit skeptical of that idea as well. It seems to be fairly elaborate. Now, if the person picked was a shaman, perhaps I could see that as a life ritual. He literally dies as a human, goes into the wild, kind of in this liminal state, and returns to his human life. So it would be life, death, and rebirth. But that's an unusual theory, let me just say. And I don't think the pugs are too impressed with it either at this point. Right, Achilles? That's right. Okay. So what we're going to do is at this point, we're going to pause. This is our last little section for this particular episode, but let me give you a little bit of a preface for this recording. The Spirits of St. Petersburg had gone down to the oldest cemetery in Tampa. It's called Oaklawn Cemetery, which is alleged to be haunted. The story is that there was a man who was accused of robbing a very wealthy man in Tampa, which at that point had about 500 people. We're talking the early 1800s. Tampa was nothing at that point, and raping the man's daughter. He was held in jail, but... Because of this transgression, an angry mob formed. Uh, They dragged him out and they hung him without a trial. So the story or the legend is that in this cemetery, and Oakland is the oldest cemetery in Tampa, it was actually the first public cemetery created for paupers, indigenous, I think I got that, and slaves at the time. He was actually buried in the Oakland Cemetery. It is said that at sunset, you see his ghost and he walks, uh, he's either seen hanging from a tree, or he walks to the cemetery with his neck at an odd angle. Well, I am sorry to say that we really didn't have any luck with that urban legend. We were there for sunset, and in fact, uh, we had paused at the time of this recording, because there were police helicopters flying around, not looking for us, I'm happy to say, but there was a a jail not too far from us, so everybody was kind of keeping an eye on the area just to see what was going to happen. But ultimately, in the middle of this, we actually did smell kind of this rancid odor. So uh, you'll actually hear us talk about that. Most likely uh, we were there right after the tropical storm hit this area because it has been 2020 and 2020 has sucked. (laughs) So we had, which one was it? Good Lord. I can't even think of her name right now, but Uh, We had a tropical storm that kind of whacked us. It started off as a a hurricane, and by the time it hit land, luckily for us, it was a strong tropical storm. We actually went to the cemetery the following week. So you'll hear us kind of talk about what this possibly could be. So we're here at Oaklawn Cemetery, uh, the Spirits of St. Petersburg and I, and we are doing a little bit of an investigation of the historic Tampa Cemetery, but we're at a bit of a lull right now. So um, JJ had told me uh, about her paranormal cat experience, so we thought we'd go ahead and record it while we're here.
1: Okay. My name's JJ Wallace, and my husband and I, we had four cats. Three of them had passed. Uh, one of them, <clears throat> Sammy Joe, was particularly close to him and would sleep right next to him. And Pippi was particularly close to me, very attached to me, and would sleep over me, on me, next to me, always by me. <clears throat> and she passed. It was very tough because um, she became kind of like a mother to Ittybit, the latest one that we got. She kind of took her under her wing, and they were very close they napped together, they played together, and so Itty Bit kind of started taking over Pippi's routine a little bit. She would come next to me, but she'd do her, this routine where she makes her little biscuits on the pillow, and then she goes up on the chair, and then we go to sleep. Well, one night I'm laying there, and I feel What I thought was itty-bit, walking across me and over to the pillow. I know, I smell that, too. And, um... But I didn't feel her making biscuits, and I thought that was weird. And so I got up and I looked, but she wasn't there. She was asleep in the bed across the room. So I believe that that was Pippi coming to lay next to me because I felt very strongly about that. Interesting. And I believe that our pets are still with us even after they go because we had such a connection.
0: And actually, while you were telling that story, we might as well just tell folks. I don't know, did you get that aroma? It was like horse manure. I thought it might be like light decomp, but it stank. It was so instant. Yeah. Like, where would it have come from? And where has it gone? I still
1: smell it a little. You guys are standing on top of the sergeant. Uh, not on top of the sergeant, but next to one. Turn around. Sergeant. Every time I see sergeant, I always think horses. I don't know why. Oh, because of the cavalry?
0: Oh, that's interesting. Well. Oh, and he was in the Indian War, the Seminole Indian War. Well, that was interesting, but. Uh, We'll have to listen to this now to see if we got anything. All right. Thank you for telling us your story. You're welcome. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that. And I want to thank you all for listening to another episode of Paranormal Pets. Just a reminder please adopt. We've got lots of needy animals still in need of homes. If you do not adopt, please consider donating to a local animal shelter because they're always in need of supplies. And on top of that, if you want to know more about the Spirits of St. Petersburg, please feel free to Google us at www.spiritsofstpete.com. We're trendy now. Everybody out there, please stay safe, take care, and I will catch you on the next episode.
2: Life Radio presents Paranormal Pets, where you can always expect the unexpected. Each week we'll discuss all aspects of weird or spiritual animal encounters, ghosts, totems, psychic animals, animal souls, animal angels, and animals in religion, with a little cryptozoology thrown in. Step into the supernatural world of pets every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.